Welcome to the 248th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today's a discussion with United States House Representative Nakima Williams of the Georgia 5th District. Just a reminder, Today is a special time for COVID calls, so you can usually catch COVID calls live at its new time, weekdays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 29th, 2021, there are 2,784,465 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 549,335. And in the state of Georgia, the death toll from COVID-19 is now at 18,349. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. Congresswoman Nakima Williams, let me tell you a little bit about her. She represents Georgia's 5th Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives. The 5th District is a historic district, a seat formerly held by Congress woman Williams's friend and mentor, civil rights icon, the late Congressman John Lewis. Congressman Lewis represented the 5th District for over 30 years until his passing last year. Congresswoman Williams contributed to history by being elected as the first black woman to represent Georgia's 5th Congressional District. He was elected also as the freshman class president for the 117th Congress. As president, she organizes and advances the interests of her freshman Democratic colleagues to fulfill their oath to work for the people. Before her congressional election, Congresswoman Williams served in the Georgia State Senate, and as a state senator, Williams got in, quote unquote, good trouble, the kind that Congressman John Williams spoke about. In the wake of the disastrous 2018 Georgia elections, marked with rampant voter suppression, she was arrested at the Georgia State Capitol while peacefully protesting with her constituents that every vote be counted. She was born in Columbus, Georgia, raised by her grandparents in Smith Station, Alabama, and attended Talladega College, a liberal arts, historically black college in Talladega, Alabama. Congresswoman Nakima Williams, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. I am joining you from Atlanta, Georgia, in my home office that I feel like I spend way too much time in and have spent too much time in over the last year. Um, the pandemic situation in Georgia, we just open up vaccines to every person over the age of 16 in the state. So we are getting shots in the arms and trying to do our part. Georgia is still, unfortunately, second to last, though, in vaccines administered. So we have a long ways to go here in, in Georgia. Your own COVID story goes back to the beginning of the pandemic. And I wonder if I could get you to start just by talking a little bit about that. You were diagnosed with COVID while you were serving in the Georgia State Senate. Is that right? 
Yes. Um, early on, I was one of the first people in the state to get the pen to get the virus. And I remember um, two weeks ago when it was the one year anniversary, it popped up on my Facebook feed and people were saying you were the first person that I knew that had COVID. And I didn't really think it was real until I saw that you were sick. But I was really sick, Scott. I was in bed for three weeks straight and ended up in the ER. And when I first um, I first knew that I was sick, I had a fever and didn't understand what was going on. And we never got get sick in our house, even with the um, with some a preschooler going to school every day. We just like we I guess were resilient against germs. We didn't even have a thermometer in the house. And so my husband right. went and got his meat thermometer from our barbecue to try and like see if we could figure out my temperature. And there were no tests available when I first got sick. It took me um, over a week to get even a test and then another week to get the results back. So I was sick for two weeks before I even got a diagnosis of being positive and then in bed for three weeks. So it was I didn't know which side of this I was going to turn out on. It was pretty bad. I'm sorry you were so sick. And I'm, of course, glad that you recovered. And it must have been an incredibly stressful time. I, I remember reading at that time, too, there was this speculation about how you had gotten it and you know various members not being uh, safe and, and courteous in the way that they might treat each other in terms of infection control. And one of the things struck me, I, I went back and looked at an interview you did at that time. And you did really great public health messaging. You didn't blame. You just said, you know, this is something you can be asymptomatic and you can spread it to people without knowing it. And I thought you hit a, a grace note as a potential political ally across the aisle, but you also spread good public health information at the same time. I don't know if that was intentional on your part or just who you are, but it was really impressive. So at the time, we were hearing a lot from people saying that they weren't sick. And we had heard from national public health leaders that you could spread the virus and still be asymptomatic. And so I wanted to push back against some of the notion that you had to be laying in a hospital bed and knowingly sick to spread this virus. And there is no way of knowing exactly who I contracted it from. And that was the only way we we're going to get people to truly understand that you can't go about business as usual. You need to wear a mask. You need to stay home as much as possible because masks weren't even readily available. We had people at home making masks out of t-shirts. And I was pushing back against my governor against this law that we had on the books that restricted adults from even wearing masks in public. And so we had a lot that we needed to be doing as leaders. And oftentimes as leaders, you have to step out of the comfort zone of what you want to do, what you're doing at home personally, and make sure that you're setting forth a good path for the rest of the country. I want to maybe just talk to you a little bit now about what the first few weeks of this year were like. You you gave an interview to the Washington Post uh, recently, and you said this is a remarkable line. I just want to quote, you said, as a new member of Congress, I've, you've been a member for three Wednesdays. The first Wednesday, we had an insurrection and an attack on the U.S. Capitol. The second Wednesday, we had a vote to impeach the president. And my third Wednesday in Congress, I was there witnessing the inauguration and the transfer of power. That is really extraordinary. And I want to start with the first part of that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your January 6th experience. So, and Scott, that next Wednesday, my husband told me, he said, Nakeem, I'm going to need your um, Wednesday to be, I, the highlight of the day is I got a bagel in the Longworth snack bar. <laughs> I don't need you to have any more, <laughs> more big dramatic. days, big days right now. 
But that day, January 6th, my husband and my five-year-old son were still in town because I'd just gotten sworn in three days before, and it was a big deal for our family. And I moved into my new apartment um, right in Navy Yard. And I told my husband that morning, because we've been advised to get to the Capitol early because they were expecting protests, but it was so that we could avoid the traffic and the delays in getting there. And we got there early. He dropped me off because I don't have a car in D.C., and we, I went in and I told him, I was like, well, once I get inside of the building, I'll be fine because this is one of the safest places in the country. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. I'd been up all night the night before because Georgia's two Senate seats had just been called and I've been doing press throughout the middle of the night. And so I was still watching election results and I was an elector. I was one of the 16 electors in the state of Georgia. And so I was getting ready for my very first floor speech as a member of Congress to go down and defend the 16 electoral college votes from Georgia because Georgia was anticipated to be one of the states that was going to be contested. And so I had my remarks ready and I was preparing myself a little nervous because I'm a new member of Congress. I'm only three days in and I'm going to be speaking on the floor against something this big. And I never got that moment to go onto the floor because of COVID um, members stay in their offices until votes are called. And so we were told at the end of the Arizona objection the members from Georgia should come down to the floor to get ready for the Georgia objection. So I was sitting in my office and getting myself prepared to walk down, which I still didn't even really know how to get through the tunnels and on the floor of the Capitol without a staff member taking me. And I saw I was watching TV and my husband called me and he said, Nakima, something is going on. They just removed the speaker from the chamber. And I still didn't understand the magnitude of it. And I started getting updates on Twitter. And then I realized that the United States Capitol had been breached. We were under attack. I could hear the sirens. And we closed our blinds in our office and turned off the location services on our phone so that nobody could find us. Media started coming through, asking me if I could do interviews and where was I. And it was a scary moment. And that evening was even scarier because we continued to the work. We got done about 4 a.m. because we didn't allow um, a domestic terrorist attack to stop us from our constitutional duty of certifying the Electoral College votes. But that next day in talking with my son, my five-year-old son, Carter, he had been watching some of the news coverage as my husband was trying to figure out if I was okay. And he said, Mommy, are we safe? And I tried to assure him that we were safe because my apartment is not on a ground level. And he said, but the bad guys can climb the building. Can't they get up here where we are? And so it's been quite the experience of trying to make sure that my son understands that he's safe at home. But after that, I now have 24-hour security right now in my driveway because I've gotten so many threats and it's still not safe to serve as a member of Congress in this country. Thank you for relating that story. It's almost unbelievable. And even bringing it, you bringing it back so vividly, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't even that long ago. It feels like so much distance even uh, since then, so many additional tragedies. But just to reflect on that moment a little bit in the context of the pandemic, I wonder if you would, because I, I'm curious how you might see this connection between that pandemic year that we've all lived through and then that insurrection that you were wrapped up in, that amount of 
of anger, political violence, um, unspeakable acts that happened in the United States Capitol building. How do you draw those two together? What do they mean to you in terms of how they might be connected? So number one, I guess in some ways I'm grateful for the pandemic because that meant the chambers weren't full and I wasn't allowed to be on the floor at the time because had it not been for the COVID restrictions on the floor, I would have been sitting there waiting to make my floor speech. But fortunately, because of COVID controls, I was sitting in my, in my office. But all of this buildup, the buildup throughout the pandemic, the way the pandemic was politicized, the way that, like you said, it was a Republican member who came to the state Senate and was knowingly sick, waiting for test results that likely spread the, the virus throughout the chamber. But I didn't blame him because I knew that this was something bigger than a political party and a partisan fight. But that was not the messaging that we saw across the country. That was not the messaging that we saw from the White House. And it was allowed to be politicized. Wearing a mask was politicized, even addressing if the pandemic was real. And so it was this buildup of these conspiracy theories, one after another, after another. And that led into the animosity of how we would even fight the pandemic and respond to it, which the world was grappling with. And then looking at the election results where people were pushing back and we, it, I say that we went back for a peaceful transfer of power, but it wasn't peaceful because we had an attack on the United States Capitol from within. And so we pushed forward, but all of this was a collective, was an intersection of one conspiracy after another and leaders in our country not willing to lead and stand up for the truth. And when we're in the midst of a public health pandemic, we should have a way to address the concerns of the nation without something as simple as wearing a mask being politicized. And that kind of bubbled up and led us to everything that we saw on January 6th. Just a reminder that you're listening to a very special COVID calls today with Representative Nakima Williams of the Georgia 5th Congressional District. And I wanted to ask you about racial justice, I guess, broadly, but, you know, through the pandemic, inequalities have been revealed uh, to many people. They didn't need to be revealed. They are there every day. But to many Americans who may not think about racial justice on every day. The pandemic has revealed cracks in our society of longstanding. It's, and it's also provoked new violence. I mean, the, the spa shootings there in the greater Atlanta metro area, the radical increase of anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year. You're a leader in this area, and your mentor, John Lewis, was, of course, a longstanding leader in this area. I wonder if I could draw you out a little bit about how you're thinking about the lessons of the pandemic year and how we can make sense of racial equality, but also what can we do? What, what can be the steps forward from these 
sort of horrible times we've been living through. So I I often um, I think about my upbringings. I grew up in a home with no indoor plumbing and no running water, and people would not expect that from someone my age. And I look at all of the the inequities that I've always known to exist in our society. And I remember the very early conversations. There was a group of Black state legislators who reached out to our governors and to the um, administration in Washington about all of the things that we were seeing that were impacting the Black community that we've always known, but COVID put a spotlight on. All of the healthcare disparities, the inequities in um, housing and the financial and economic disparities that we had, that we saw elevated. And now being a member of Congress, as we look at how we're able to, um, to move forward from this pandemic and address the concerns of the country, we can't just go back to where we were in February or January of 2020, because that we know now, or the rest of the world now knows what we've always known is that that still doesn't bring everyone up on an equal playing field. And so that's why things like the American Rescue Plan, I am truly excited about addressing things like childhood poverty with the child tax credit, like just so many different things that are in this bill that so many people don't know about that move us further ahead than where we were before the pandemic. And so this is our moment for bold action. This is our moment to lead, to make sure that we are lifting people up out of poverty, that we're addressing healthcare concerns. In Georgia, we're getting $2 billion to give us the opportunity to expand Medicaid, something that is leaving 500,000 Georgians out of having health care right now. Today, 500,000 Georgians don't have health care. And that could be solved by accepting these federal funds to expand Medicaid. But the challenge is, are we willing to put politics aside and address the needs of the people? So I continue to speak out. I continue to speak up. Congressman Lewis taught us that sometimes you have to get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and find a way to get in the way. And that's what I have to continue to do. I have an obligation to represent people whose voices are often unheard and unseen in this process. Just to follow up on on that, you know, one of the things I worry about so much last year is continued erosion of faith in government. And of course, that's we were talking earlier about. Republicans who would use the pandemic as a way, as an electoral strategy, basically, to reduce faith in government. That's a strategy of longstanding. But but I think it wasn't just Republicans who who looked around last year and and said, wow, this government is weaker than we thought. These institutions are shakier than we thought. It seems like a lot of emphasis is going to need to come um, from your class, uh, particularly new members of Congress, to really give people confidence again that government can work, don't you think? I'm I'm curious how how you might address somebody who. So who I I that. agree. There are a lot of people who don't have confidence in our government. For good well, you have to acknowledge that people have valid reasons 
for thinking that our government doesn't work for them. And one of the things that I'm so proud of is that I was appointed to the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress by Speaker Pelosi. Mm -hmm. This is a bipartisan committee, truly bipartisan. Anything that comes out has been agreed to by both um, members because we have six Democrats and six Republicans. So we can't even pass anything out unless we agree. And this committee is designed to make Congress work better for the people in 2021. How do we modernize Congress? How do we make it work for everyone? And I'm excited about this because it gives me the opportunity to live up to some of the things that I've always said. I am operating in a system that not that was not designed by or for people who look like me, but I'm determined to make Congress work for all of us. And you can't ignore people's concerns because the government has not worked for all of us. And so there are some valid concerns there. And we all have a role to play in making sure that we make Congress work, make every body of government work for the people, because that's what we're here for. And oftentimes people get caught up in their own personal politics and forget about the people that they were sent to Washington to serve. A lot of times a first term member of the House gets a little bit of breathing room before they're thrust on the national stage. You haven't had that luxury of time. You're already on the national stage. But I wanted to ask you a more local question. Right now, you know, the pandemic is still ongoing. We're moving into the vaccination phase. What does your district need? What are some of the most essential needs in your district in terms of recovering from this pandemic? So right now in in my district, we still have large swaths of population where the vaccine just hasn't been accessible. And so we we need to get the vaccine into hard to reach communities. We've heard a lot about vaccination hesitancy, but what I have seen on the ground is people want the vaccine but it's just not available. The na- Navigating the system to even make an appointment has been an all day affair for people. And we've had to create little help groups just to online to help people navigate the process of making appointments. I have seniors who have been trying to get vaccines and the vaccine has been available for them since January. And they've been trying, but have not been successful in getting appointments. And then it's, where the vaccine location, the centers are. I Last week, our governor, before he made the announcement that vaccines would be available to everyone, we he said that, well, people should just drive to South Georgia if you're in Metro Atlanta and want the vaccine and can't get it. Well, that means taking off work. That means getting in your car and driving hours and trying to find this location in a place. Why not put the vaccine centers in the areas of greatest need? So we started to partner with churches in the black community, in the neighborhoods, because we know that churches are trusted community partners in the black community. And so we partner with churches to get vaccines in the areas that need it the most. And right now, that's where we are. We still have a long way to go around recovery. I get so many calls every day of people who have been trying to get unemployment from the state of Georgia since last summer. People who still haven't gotten one dollar and have been struggling to get their unemployment benefits because the state is 
not responding, not answering phone calls, not answering emails. So I've joined with other members of Congress asking for an investigation of the Georgia Department of Labor because the funds have been sent from the federal government. We need to get them to the people. And then looking at even now from the the current administration and the $1,400 survival checks that were sent out to people, if you're unbanked or underbanked, there is no way to send you that money directly. So you're still waiting and still needing those direct funds to help you out. And that is so many people across our communities who are still waiting because they don't have a banking relationship. And so we have to address that. And how do we get that money to people who don't have a way to get it through their banks? Your district is such an interesting one. I mean, all of the issues you just described. And it's also, I mean, the greater you know, Atlanta area is also, I mean, the CDC, there's so many universities, it's a center of knowledge production as well. So you're, you're on the one hand, you're dealing with as a representative down to the level of like, can somebody get their check, please? Um, Also voting restriction, also racial justice, but also trying, and I'd like to hear sort of your thoughts on this, trying to promote innovation and new science and all the things that we've relied on to cope with this pandemic too. I, I guess I'm sort of in awe of the the variability of your district. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how how you think you know, science is gonna is gonna work as we go into this new year. Well, it was quite promising for me last week. I got the opportunity to go and visit with the new CDC director, Dr. Oh. Lewinsky, and we had a conversation about it. Was the day that she rolled out the new plans around school reopenings, which was as a mom of a kindergartner, near and dear to my heart. We've been watching the science and determining what was safe for our son, and we wanted the same thing for every other family. And in speaking with Dr. Lewinsky, and that same day, President Biden and Vice President Harris were in Atlanta, and so. So I was able to speak with both of them about our concerns around just the science and how do we get people to trust in science again? Because for far too long in the previous administration, there's this pushback against experts, against the science. And so I've always been on the side. My undergrad degree is in biology. And so Mm -hmm. I've always been on the side of let's follow the science and that will lead us to where we need to be. And speaking with her, it was reassuring that we are really looking to experts to guide us through how do we truly get out of this pandemic. And I'm I'm warmed by that, but it's going to take leaders uplifting that and amplifying it and making sure that we are talking to, I often say that I center those most marginal in my decision-making process, which is why things like getting the checks to people and getting vaccine sites and communities and doing the food drives that we've been doing have been so critical because if we uplift those people most marginalized, then it uplifts everyone. And so our schools are getting vaccinated. Um, They've chosen vaccine days for all staff at schools to come and get their vaccines. And so it's become a community thing at this point. And we're continuing to, I'll show up at vaccination sites to show encouragement and pass out snacks and just be there to greet people because it's taking our whole community to come together to get through this. But it's so good to see leaders who believe in science and who are amplifying science-based evidence on how we move forward. And so I I am honored to partner with Dr. Lewinsky and the staff at the CDC as we continue to roll out things and 
um, rolling them out in communities and getting that information to our churches and getting the information out on a community level so that people are actually hearing that what is being said at, that is coming out of the CDC. Well, we, we sure could use more people in government who can talk about um, biology and science the way you're you're talking. Were you pre-med? Were you thinking of going that route? Could I you see was. I, really? I thought I was going to go to medical school, which is why I moved yeah. to Atlanta and I got here okay. um, and I caught the political bug and the rest I see of it. <laughs> it's not too late, maybe. You know, I mean, there's always a possibility. We've had members of the house <laughs> who were also doctors. I think you probably got a pretty full day. Um, we're almost up on time with Representative Nakima Williams on COVID calls. One last question, um, and this is really about uh, how you think people are going to remember this time in the future. I'm from the South, too, originally from Texas. And, you know, the battles over memory in the South are never ending. Um, and we've been arguing about certain aspects of Southern history um, forever, it seems like. I wonder how you think this COVID year um, should be remembered. What are the ways that we can honor those who've died, those who've suffered? Um, I'm sort of curious because I think it's an ongoing conversation. We shouldn't wait till it's over to start talking about how to memorialize. We should probably be talking about it now. I'm curious. I think your vantage point on this would be really valuable. I think looking back on the the weekend of the inauguration and I saw all of those flags on the National Mall that were representing the people that we've lost from COVID in this country. And just seeing that display and the imagery of what that represented will, will never be lost upon me. And so there needs to be something permanent done in this country because unfortunately, we all know that it didn't have to be this bad. When we look at how other countries responded, some of this is on us and the leaders in this country that weren't willing to make the tough decisions. I keep looking at my Facebook memories keep popping up and reminding me of what I was doing this time last year. And I thought that we were shutting down until Easter. And I was like, oh, I can't wait until Memorial Day. And we're going to have this big cookout. And the world is everything's going to be better because we're going to shut down. But if this last year hasn't taught us anything. It is that we're all in this together. And you can do one thing as an individual, but collectively we can change what happens in this country. And so that is in so many different fronts. With the pandemic, had we all shut down for two weeks and got this under control, who knows where we would be right now. But that didn't happen. We didn't have a national response. We didn't have and it shows us the need for the federal government for so many people that say we don't need a federal government or run for federal office who don't believe in federal government, which is absurd to me. But it shows us the need for our national response to something of this magnitude and what we can do when Americans truly come together to work together for the good of everyone. And so we, we need to continue to talk about what could have been what still can be, because we're not out of this yet. I was just watching results over the news over the weekend where Michigan is surging again. We have these new variants coming in. And so we have to continue to look out for each other and use this as we came together after 9-11. And there were far fewer people that were lost in this country after 9-11. And we need to come together as a country, put partisan divides aside and look at 
what is truly good for our nation and what will move all of us forward. You've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Tomorrow, I'll be talking to Yale University neuroscientist Daniel Colon-Ramos about his experience with the pandemic and also the COVID-19 experience in Puerto Rico. And I want to thank my guest today, Congresswoman Nakima Williams, for all you're doing, for your leadership, and for taking the time to talk about your experiences today. Thank you so much. We'll be watching you. Thank you.